Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Well, uh, book of Haggai. The way that we're starting and that we have started each uh, study here in the Minor Prophets is we begin with something called our prophet profile. Our prophet profile. There it is. Uh, There's four general questions that we want to be able to answer for each of these books so that we can just have a general grasp and understanding on what's, uh, about what's going on, okay? So we're going to ask, you know, in regards to Haggai, um, who is the prophet? We're going to ask, where is the prophet? We're going to ask, when is the prophet? And lastly, why is the prophet? What do they exist for? All right, so first let's start with the name. You see it there in verse 1. This is the book of the prophet Haggai. Um, we're going to see some other references to this guy, but one of many of Israel's prophets in their history. For fun, and it's totally appropriate for the season of Christmas, his name means the festive one. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, that's so me. I'm the Haggai. Um, Anyway, he's the festive one, okay? So he's the one decorating at this time of year, all right? Uh, He's a prophet to Israel. Now, this is where it gets really helpful knowing what's going on, where he's at, what his ministry is, where is his territory, Haggai, we're going to see, is a prophet in post-exile Jerusalem. Post-exile Jerusalem. Uh, Let me kind of back up and show you this chart um, that gives you an idea of what what we're talking about here. Um, With the prophets, all 17 of them, and certainly the 12 minors that we've studied, uh, you can really break them up into these different categories in the chronology in regards to their exile. Uh, So all of the prophets up until this point that we've studied, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, we haven't studied Isaiah, that's a major prophet, but Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, uh, all um, nine of those take place prior to the Babylonian exile in, uh, in Judah, in Jerusalem. And if you kind of look back on these studies, they've generally had that same kind of tone. Um, Most of the prophets carry this outline of God coming to his people, who he has been, he has entered covenant with, and he's indicting them, usually, for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Worshiping other gods, not reflecting God's heart through injustice and sin and immorality. Uh, But that's usually how these books start, like God just indicting his people, like you're being unfaithful. Um, And with that indictment comes these predictive judgments. Some of them are conditional, like if you turn and repent and come back to me, like I will withhold the judgment. But most of the time, they are uh, absolute. These are judgments that are to come. Uh, and that's what you have in the Minor Prophets. You have these, uh, these people that represent the people of God, unfaithful to God, and God pr- promising judgment that's to come upon them. And over and over again, you have this judgment that is promised that, uh, to come through the empire of Babylon. Uh, and that's what happens in 605 B.C. All that we have been studying... Uh, Up until this point, for the past nine weeks, it comes to pass. In 605 B.C., under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the best uh, account of this is the book of Daniel, right? We all know the story of Daniel, the lion's den, that guy. Did you know that he was in exile, living uh, in a foreign land? He was a captive. And so Daniel kind of details the whole uh, history of that. Now, when Israel or Judah goes into exile... They are captive for 70 years, just as Jeremiah promised and prophesied, which is amazing, the pinpoint accuracy of that. Uh, In fact, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even describing the names of the kings that would rise up over these empires even before 
their mother thought to name them, whatever they named them. Um, so th- that's really, really cool to see the prophecy there. Uh, Seventy years go by, and you end up with, books, uh, with the books that we are in now. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So the book we're in now is the first of the last three minor prophets. It's the last three books in the Old Testament. And these are all uh, books where the prophets are ministering in a time post-exile. What do I mean by post-exile? That 70 years has gone by, and at this point, let's go back to this slide here. At this point, there has been a group of 50,000 Jews that have returned to Jerusalem after that exile. Now, this is another interesting story. Um, And for all of these, I'd encourage you to to read the accounts of this. You have Daniel talks about uh, Judah's uh, original exile from Babylon. You read Ezra, and you have a really cool narrative there in Israel's history. What happens is after those 70 years, what God does is he stirs the heart of a pagan king, the king of, of Persia. The Persian Empire has now taken over 70 years later. And, and this king, King Cyrus, God stirs his heart, pagan king, to send the Jews back to their homeland to rebuild God's temple. It's amazing. Now, the nation is in absolute ruins. If you remember, uh, how many of you guys were with our church almost, wow, What are we going on, three years ago when we studied the book of Nehemiah? How many of you guys were around for that? So Nehemiah, that was the first book that we studied as a church. That detailed the broken down walls of Jerusalem, the destruction that was there. And that happens way after the the return from exile. But before any of that happened, before there was any construction teams working on Israel, that's a whole mess. I've got a whole construction project been going on in my neighborhood now for like three years. Just got a new truck. And I gave up on washing it. I'm like, I'm just done. It's just horrible. And in fact, two months ago, I came out my front door and the porta potty was on my yard. I was like, don't you like ask for permission like to, to go on my property? You know, anyway, sorry about that. That wasn't in my notes. Um, construction project, big time. Okay. So that, that's, that happens with Nehemiah. Now, before any of that though, so it's before that the, the walls are being built. Here's what's so interesting. Okay. Seven years of exile. Um, the, the, the king of Persia's heart gets stirred to send God's people back to rebuild the temple. And you have 50,000 Jews that you read about in Ezra 1 that are sent back for this project. And isn't it interesting that like, God sends his people back and the first like, order of business is to restore worship in the nation. Not to restore the security. The walls come later. The first order of business in any nation is to restore proper worship. Uh, and to let God be your wall, you know, to let God be the one that protects you. Now, eventually, they would have those kind of physical construction things. But that was, uh, you, you could say that was the priority in God's heart, man. And he promised this. He promises through all the minor prophets, like, you're going to go into exile. But because I'm faithful, despite you not being, this is the message of God and the Bible and history, uh, our inability to keep covenant with God and be unfaithful, but God's faithfulness to still love us to still pursue us and be good to us. And so he told Israel and Judah that even though you're going to exile, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to the land. And so, man, that's where Haggai is at this, at this moment. He's in post-exile Jerusalem. 538 BC, the first group comes back. They start rebuilding uh, the temple. So uh, now let's get a little bit more specific. What is the exact time frame of this prophet? So post-exile Jerusalem but it's, it's specifically, Haggai starts in 520 B.C., and this is an important detail. This is where Haggai begins. 18 years, and now we have, fast forward 18 years. So I just gave you that 
really difficult to follow history lesson. I got a little bit more for you, okay? All right, 18 years after they return, that 50,000 returns from exile, uh, you have that first Jewish remnant, and it's 16 years since the halting of the temple reconstruction project. So you go back to Ezra, and you see the people come back, and they, it's beautiful. They get to work. They get to work rebuilding the temple of God. It's beautiful. There's this amazing, like, uh, dedication ceremony they have when they build the altar and the foundation. And the, the, the people of Israel are rejoicing. You have the older folks actually grieving at the same time because of how puny the new temple is compared to the old one. They're like, this is nothing. They're, like, actually weeping. Um, we're going to look at that verse in a little bit. But uh, that's what happens. They get back, and they get to work. Now, midway through their building project, this is, so this is, again, 18 years prior to the book of Haggai, 18 years prior, they start building the temple. And midway through, here's what it tells us in Ezra chapter 4. My slides are all out of whack here. Here we go. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God in Israel, it says they came to Zerubbabel, who's like the general contractor of the project in, in a lot of ways, all right, and the heads of the father's houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ashadana, all right, king of, what a horrible name, right? It's like, hey, Asharidan, all right, king of Assyria, all right? And he, he's the one who brought us here. So you have these, ad, so they're building the temple 18 years prior to Haggai. They're building the temple, and the, and the servants of Ashatada show up, and they're like, hey, we want to build with you. We, we worship the same God. And so they're kind of like, hey, can we be a part of this? These are pagans. Now, we know they're adversaries, so they don't mean well. But you should be careful who you blindly go into partnership with, Right? And so that's what we see happening here. And then it goes on to say this. It says, But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So, like, like thanks for the offer, but, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Like, I know you want to help, but, like, I don't know you. Like, who are you, all right? Like, you don't know me, I don't know you. You're not getting in on this, all right? Number one, because this is a holy calling that Israel has. To rebuild the temple. And number two, the king of Persia told me to do it, okay? Like, you have, if you have issue, go talk to him. That's what they say. Now, like most human beings, they didn't take no well, right? They didn't receive the no, uh, um, it wasn't received humbly. So it says, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, and they troubled them in building. They weren't happy about it. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the day of days of Cyrus, king of Persian, Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you have the rebuilding of Jerusalem opposed here, which is, again, a consistent story in life with God. So that every time you set your hand and you set your heart to do something great for God, please expect opposition. In fact, that opposition is often not a discouragement to what God's called you to. It's usually an affirmation, right? Like if right now you're just coasting and there's no opposition, everything's great, I would like evaluate if you're a threat to darkness. And like are you actually, are you putting your life towards something significant enough that the enemy starts to look and go, hey, what are they doing? Right? Like that's what's happening. Uh, The enemies start coming against the work of God, and um, what they end up doing is, so these like sketchy dudes, they hire counselors to frustrate, this is what the enemy is always doing, okay? He knows that he can't stop the purpose of God, so the enemy will try to frustrate 
the purpose of God. You ever felt like your spiritual purpose was frustrated? Right? That's, what he, that's what they're doing. Um, and the way that they do it is they go tattletale. There's a new king. And he goes to the, to, they go to this new king, King Artaxerxes, and they basically manipulate the king into thinking that Israel and Judah is a threat. He's like, they're like, you don't want to let them build this temple. You do not want to do it. So here's what happens. Their plans are successful. And King Artaxerxes sends a letter. This is 18 years before the book of Haggai. And it's, it's brought to Jerusalem in haste. And by for, the force of arms made them cease. So they, they, they literally physically stop Israel and Judah from building uh, under the authority of the pagan king at the time. So it's a really sad moment. Um, it says in Ezra 4.24 that the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, this reminds me a little bit of the Bahamas. I, I you know, um, I lived in the Bahamas for two years, and the Bahamas is notorious for incompleted building projects, all right, and a lot of kind of the Caribbean area where you have, uh, usually in the Bahamas, the culture there, it's like, let's just get started, let's build. And then like you lay the foundation, you're halfway through and the government shows up, they're like, hey, have you got a permit for this? Like, permit? Like, who needs a permit? It's the Caribbean. Get out of here, you know? And usually what it's like is like, no, you got, you got to stop. Uh, I got into a whole issue with that this year at my house. I was doing something and the neighbor peeked over the fence, like, you got a permit? And it's like, permit a giant tree to keep you out of here. Um, Jesus loves you and died on the cross for your sins. Um, so, uh, but, but this is like what's going on. The, the, the building project is stopped, all right? J- just like a, again, in the Bahamas, it's just like a lot of cinder block foundations. You'll see that all over the place, these incompleted uh, building projects. Well, uh, listen now, okay? Haggai, the book of Haggai, picks up then, there it is, it picks up 18 years after that moment we just read. That's where Haggai shows up. Haggai comes in the picture 18 years after the purpose of Israel was frustrated. The foundation of the temple was built, and the altar was built, but that was it. It was stopped. Now, 18 years later, Haggai shows up, and he has a special task. It's only, you can imagine now is, uh, Judah, they've been 50,000 of them. Now there's more that have come. They're just kind of cruising. They've kind of let... The opposition that came against them, like, give them an excuse to kind of, like, slide back and just be like, all right, well, I guess it's not God's timing, you know. And now it's been 18 years of just cruising with their own ways, their own life, doing their own thing. And then God sends Haggai to mess all that up in a really cool way. And here's his task. I don't know if you can see it there at the bottom, but this is, man, like, if we could summarize, if someone were to ask you today, like, man, uh, with this context, who was Haggai? All right, he sounds like a great guy, but who was Haggai? Like, what did he do? What was his mission and his purpose? Haggai's task was to catalyze the efforts of the Jewish people to fulfill their calling of rebuilding the temple. He comes in, he's kind of like, yoo-hoo, hey guys, nice hammock, All right, nice margarita. It seems like things are going really well. Um, isn't there... A divine calling to fulfill, right? And, and that's what Haggai shows up to do. He shows up to catalyze the people, to come alongside them to fulfill the mission that God has given them that they have been sleeping on. Uh, in fact, that's what Ezra says about Haggai. There's another mention, uh, Haggai is mentioned another time in the book of Ezra. Uh, it's really interesting. Let me see if I can find it here. 
Um, yeah, that's it. Is that it? There it is. It says, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, they prophesied to the Jews who are in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And it says that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So this is like how God used this guy. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for the Haggai's in my life, the guys, the Haggai's in my life, that have come alongside of me and said, hey, there's work to do. You ever had someone like that, a friend that's like, hey, like, God's called you. What are you doing? Like, get up. Like, go. Like, fulfill what he's put before you. Uh, that's really how the Lord uses Haggai in Israel uh, and in Judah's history. Um, it's a cool thing. It's, it says this. It says, the elders of the Jews built, this is a sneak preview, like a spoiler alert, they end up building the temple. All right, uh, at the end of it, it tells us the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai. So that's like what we see uh, in the nation's history. God uh, calls the nation back, says rebuild the temple. They begin to rebuild the temple, fulfill this calling. Opposition comes and the work ceases. It halts for 18 years. Enter Haggai as a catalyst to get the wheels turning again and to catalyze the people to fulfill the calling that God has given them. And this is what leads us to the question, which is what is therefore then the major application for us? Like when you look at Haggai, what does this actually speak to your and my life? What is the message of this book? Uh, we could say this, the major message of the book of Haggai that applies to you and me as well today is the collective nature of God's kingdom project. The collective nature of God's kingdom project. You see, the, the temple in Israel was a kingdom project. It existed to serve the purposes of the kingdom of God here on earth. That's who Israel was intended to be as a people. They were intended to be a people on earth that gathered in worship in the temple as a people around the God of heaven and then existed to be a light in the world around them to the surrounding nations. It was a kingdom project to build the kingdom of God. And what's so cool about this is that though this is God's project, he invites them into it. He's like, come with me. We're going to go to work. It's like, take your kid to work day kind of a thing, right? God's like, come with me. We have a project to fulfill. God's like, I could do it on my own. I don't necessarily need you. I'm not dependent on your efforts, but I love you enough to allow you to share in my joy. It's like when I uh, allowed Evie a couple weeks ago to help me hang up the Christmas lights. She didn't help me, okay? <laughs> we broke like six of them, okay? Just, it's the big ones that just the second you like a mosquito flies into it, it like explodes, you know? It's like, someone's got to make stronger lights, okay? Is that you? Is that your kingdom project? Okay, anyway. Now, I invited her to come help me build the lights. Can I tell you why? Because of how much joy it gave her and how much joy it gave me. Evie's my four-year-old, by the way. You're like, that's rude. Is that your wife? Like, jeez. Okay. No, my wife's Brittany. Evie's my four-year-old. <laughs> And in fact, we, we, we spent most of our Christmas lights on her little tree house, which if you come to my house, there's like one little white strand on my house, and there's just like colorful, beautiful glory on her little tree house, which is a platform in a tree. It's not much of a tree house, more of a tree platform, okay? But, but Lynn, that, that's a lot like God, right? He invites us to, to, into a collective kingdom project. He's doing things. He's building things in this world, yet he says, I'm, I'm not going to do it alone. I, I, I find joy in you sharing in my joy. Isn't that awesome? 
Isn't this so go- go- good and cool that God would invite us into that? Uh, you see a great picture of this, for example, in the book of Ephesians that talks about the church. That we are, it's kind of the New Testament temple. Uh, the temple today is not a building made with hands. It's the people of God that God is building. Uh, it's still a kingdom project. So, by the way, the church is the same thing as Israel in the temple, right? We, we are, like Israel, those that gather as a people around the Lord in worship to him. And we live as a light to the world around us. So that when we pull up every week and there's, you know, there's like baseball games going on back here. And there's like, sometimes there's these big or- orchid sales. You ever seen those? People are pulling in. They're going to, going to buy orchids. They're going to they watch their kid play t-ball or baseball or coach pitch. I don't know. But they're coming in to watch that. And then they're looking at us and they're like, why are grown adults coming into a middle school cafeteria on a Sunday morning? Like, it's brunch time. What are you doing? Like, and also, why are you at a middle school? Like, what are you doing about that, too, right? And it's like, listen, it, it, we exist. We gather here, and people look on. What are you here for? We go, we're here for Jesus. We're here for a Savior, and we're alike. Now, that, that was Israel as well. That's what the temple existed for. Now, you have the New Testament picture of God building this, where it says that we are no longer strangers. Look at this beautiful language about us as the church, the people of God. We're no longer strangers and foreigners. We were apart from Jesus. But now we are fellow citizens with the saints, and we are members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this this is cool. Again, this is God's kingdom project, but it's collective. Now notice this. Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he talks about a kind of sanctification, a, a kind of development work that God is doing, not just in the lives of individuals, but collectively in a community. This is so interesting. I, I, I really haven't even heard any teaching on this before, what Paul says here. You, you know, we think of a lot about like what God's work in my life is like a very individual thing, right? It's like it's my growth, it's my progress, it's my sanctification. But God is speaking to a community. And, and he's speaking to like this community thing that he's doing. Where as a community of people, you guys aren't just individuals. Paul says you're the body. Like you're, you're members of the same family. You're members of the same body over which Christ is the head. And as that community, God is sanctifying you. God, is, God isn't just growing you individually. He's growing us collectively. And he's doing this thing. Man, what a prayer for our church. This is my prayer. That as God builds our temple, Solus Church, that he would continue to build us together to be a dwelling place of God in the spirit. What a beautiful vision, isn't that? Like, for, can we pray that over the whole church, right? What a moment in time for the American church to be built together as a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So that when people come into this place, they're like, what is going on here? And we don't have to say anything, but there's this sense, this is a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Not because there's something special about a middle school cafeteria, because let me assure you, there's not. But there's something special about God's work among his people. What a cool vision. Now, listen, this is the kingdom work, just like in the time of Haggai. A temple construction that God is building for a, a people to be around him and as a witness to the world around them. But again, here's the coolest thing about it. It's a collective project. 
So, so, so this is the illustration. God is building us together. He's the one doing the building, right? We're being built by God. It's been really cool to see God do that over time. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says that we are God's fellow workers, talking to the church. You are God's field. You are God's building. This is the same author of Ephesians. In Ephesians, he says, God is the one doing the building. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he says that he's a fellow worker with God. So who is it? Is it Paul or is it the Lord? The answer is yes. Right? It's a collective thing. Like, I look at our church, man, in three years, there is this really cool, um, almost like witness that I could give, that I'm sure all of you could give in the time that we've had here, where I look back on our, on our short history as a community, and I see two things. I see God building a church, and I see God's church building a church. It's It's awesome. It's awesome to see the different hearts, just like Israel, that God's brought around our church to build God's kingdom, to, to invest into God's purposes. Yet at the same time, it's like this dual collective work. We look back and we go, man, that was God. God's been building it, and his people have been building it. Man, from, from volunteers that show up week after week to serve in our kids' ministry, to a music team that pours their heart out in preparation to lead us in worship, to an incredible setup team. Hey, let's give a, a round of applause for our setup team, okay? That, that's here every week, turning a, a cafeteria into a house of worship. That's an act of God right there, okay? Uh, and just all the other ways that we've seen God grow people, people reawakened in their faith. Man, I just love seeing that testimony. But, but look at what Paul says about it. I love this. We are God's fellow workers. That's what he says in this project. That's what Israel was. Isn't that a cool way to think about your relationship with God? He's your father. He's your savior. He's your Lord. He's your coworker. It's like, whoa. No, don't get me wrong. He's, he's your boss too, okay? But, but I love this, this picture of a, of a father's heart that says, come work with me. Now, in light of all this, I want to ask you this important question. What kingdom building project has God given you? Think about that. What kingdom-building project has the Lord called you to? A project that he's building, but you're a fellow worker with him. What has God called you to build? Maybe God's called you to build a kingdom culture in your workplace, in your school, in your home. A kingdom culture to build that. An environment where there's this sense that Jesus is at the center. Maybe God's called you to build a marriage, a kingdom project. That's a, by the way, it's a project. Okay, it's a project. It's not like a ceremony does it. Does it? Right. The two shall become one. That word "become" should be like emphasized. Become over a long period of time and commitment and faithfulness and blood, sweat, and tears and drywall patches. Okay. Did I say drywall patches? Okay. That process of God sanctifying your marriage. Maybe God's given you a vision. Maybe he's called you to build a marriage that mirrors the relationship of Christ in the church. Maybe God's called you to build faith into the hearts of your children. To build faith into the hearts of your family. Maybe God's called you to build faith in the hearts of your friends. It's a project he's given you. Maybe it's to build a career. A kingdom project. To build a career that exists for the glory of God and the good of others. And with that, maybe God's called you to build wealth for the sake of financial legacy, 
and kingdom generosity. What has God called you to build? Here's the question. Are you working with him? Are you a fellow worker with the Lord? Are you fulfilling that calling? You know, in times when we realize we're not, God sends a Haggai. And Haggai shows up and he's like, hey, you remember that thing that God called you to do? That thing that God called your whole life to be about? Like, where's that at? How much are you giving yourself to that thing? I mean, that's literally what Haggai shows up to do. Now, that context, I want you to see the, the application of this. Haggai shows up in Israel's history. And can I say, like, um, Haggai, in his ministry to Israel to get them back on track to do what God's called them to do, it's a great reminder that you cannot fulfill. You and I can't fulfill what God has called us to do by ourselves. You need God's word, and you mostly need God's word through God's people. Not just your little quiet time. Like, that's great. Do that every day. But if all you ever have is your own voice and your own understanding of what God's doing in your life, you're missing. Like, we need Haggai's to come in the room and say, hey, hey, guy, get up. I'm done with the pun. I'm sorry. That was the last one, okay? I can't promise that, can I? But we need people in our lives. I mean, I'm so thankful for the countless voices in my life that when I was, like, um, face-to-face with God's call to start this church, it, it got to the point where I, would, I had to take a step. And not like, a, not like a step, but like a step, you know what I mean? Uh, a step out of my security and comfort into faith and trusting God. And I would not have made the step if it wasn't for the word of God through the people of God in my life. It said, go for it. This is what God has called you to. Such a time as this, right? To step out. Man, we, we need the community of God's people. And, and what God does is he uses God's people. So, so maybe today, if you're a little bit like Judah at this time, where it's been a good amount of time since you've picked up the shovel, maybe you're, you're, where you're at with what God's called you to is you've kind of just like taken a break and you've, you've sort of slacked off. Um, the message of Haggai is very ap- applicable. When you read through the book of Haggai, what you have, listen to this, is you have four messages, four sermons. That's what the book of Haggai is, two chapters here. I want you to read it this week. It's four sermons that Haggai preaches to catalyze God's people in their mission. And each of us have a mission, and each of us needs some catalyst in that. Do you know what I mean? We need some, some, some thrusting forward. We need some encouragement from God's word. Go ahead and write these four things down up here on the screen. There it is. These are the four things that God uses Haggai to do. When you read through this book, um, it's a lot to go through it. And, we, you know, this is what's kind of hard about studying whole books of the Bible here on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, if you wanted to lend me another two hours, we could. All right. So, so what we're going to do is have to just kind of overview this. All right. But, but when you read Haggai, you have these four messages that he preaches. The first uh, sermon that Haggai preaches to the people God uses, this is usually where it starts, God uses uh, the first message to stir up the spiritually inactive. That's the first thing he does. You you, you read that in chapter 1. He stirs up the spiritually inactive, and he stirs them into prioritized action. So write that as a little footnote of that first one. That's the first thing you see Haggai doing in chapter 1, stirring up an inactive people, people who are just kind of like dormant, like just comfortable, And Haggai stirs them up 
into prioritized action, into living a life that's going to matter for eternity and not just coasting through life. That's the first thing he does. Look at, it, look at what it says. You want to read it with me? Verse 2 says, the Lord of hosts says, the first sermon, the time has come. Oh, the Lord of hosts says that this people, look at verse 2, this people says that the time has not come, Haggai 1-2, that the Lord's household should be built. So it's been 18 years. And the first words that God has to say to his inactive people is he's like, hey, here's the excuse I'm hearing about the job not being done. They're saying, it's just not the time. It's not the time. It's, you know, I know it's been 18 years, but it's a time of opposition. Have you ever found yourself there like, in your head, you're making the excuse, now's not the time, right? I'll serve at church when they ask me. That'll be the time. But now it's not that. I just, in God's time, that's such a cop-out sometimes. It's like, hey, have you, you know, is there a sense of, like, missional intentionality in your workplace where you're leading your friends, like, seeking to lead your friends to know Jesus? It's just not the time. It's in God's timing. It's timing. It's like, I'm pretty sure Jesus said go. Like, it's go time, Right? Right, so that's an excuse we can make sometimes. That's what the people were doing. So look at Haggai's response. They go, it's not the time. And he goes, oh, oh, it's not the time. This is what the Lord says, verse 2. Uh, verse 3 says, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai saying, verse 4, is it time then for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this temple lies in ruins? Beneath the excuse of their inactivity was poor priorities. That's what was really going on. Because oh, it's not time to be, about the, to be about building that. God's like, oh, you're right. It's time to build your life and build your temple. He, their homes, the, the little houses they were building, he's like, they're paneled houses. So that's what the people are doing. They're inactive because, well, here's what happens. It's usually not that we say, have you ever been here? Like, this journey. It, usually, it's not that we say, no, God. I don't want your purposes for my life. That's really what it is. God, you're the last one I want to prioritize. That's net, like usually, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's never what it is. Usually what happens is the way that we push God out of that center place of the purpose of our lives is what we end up doing is we start saying yes to everything. And it's like slowly but surely, God is crowded out. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not a bad thing to have a paneled house. If you want that, shiplap, panels, right? Do it. Make your house nice. Make... There's a danger, though, when you're not actively, intentionally prioritizing God. You're saying yes to all these things in your life. And by default, when you're saying yes to all these things, you start saying no to the things of God, just naturally. It's like whenever, um, whenever God is like really doing a work in my heart and I wanna, I, I'm willing to share my food with my wife, Pray for me. Or pray for her. <laughs> um, you know, like, if we're splitting something, okay, what I do is I cut a piece, I have to, <laughs> and I give it to her. I'm like, here's your portion. You know what I don't do? I don't go, okay, let me just eat, and we'll see what's left. Because she knows nothing is going to be left for me, okay? I've got to, like, cause, and that's, listen, that's what we could do with the Lord, right? It's like, God, we'll see if there's anything left for you. God, let's see if there's any time, any, any priority in my life where you can, God, I think I can pencil your purposes in. And behind all of our excuses, there's usually those, missed, uh, those misorganized priorities where we're just saying yes to everything but God. And God's like, 
the, the issue that you go into, you read the rest of this chapter, and basically what God starts to say is like, hey, the reason why everything is failing in your life is because I'm trying to get your attention. You're, 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 you're making your houses awesome while my temple lies in ruins. And over time, you've just grown apathetic. And what was, what was once like a, a genuine reason, like, listen, when, when Israel was first stopped, there was no reason for them to keep going. Like, they had to stop. But they let that reason become a present excuse when it wasn't a factor anymore. And it's like, listen, get to work, right? Like, check your priorities. What has God called you to build? And, and where has it found itself on the portion plate of your life? Um, and, and so there's this really cool verse. Look at the end of chapter 1. We're just kind of skimming through this. It says in verse 14 that the Lord stirred up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, and verse 14 says that God stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord God. Isn't that so cool? God stirs up the spiritually inactive into prioritized action because time is short. And man, if, if, um, if the enemy can't get us steeped in wickedness, you know, what, you know what his next best option is? Just keep Christians busy. Just keep them busy with politics. If we can, you ever read screw tape letters? And you get into this. Read screw tape letters and see that genius C.S. Lewis dialogue with how spiritual warfare looks. Where they look on at Christians and they go, well, if we can just get Christians consumed enough with the political issues. Now, have fun, by the way, with politics. Have a blast. Get involved. Go for it. Post about it. But there comes a point when that's the priority of your life. And you're so busy with the political issues that you're not even able to see your, your neighbor as someone who's lost, broken, in need of a savior. You just see them as a political enemy. Because your mission is to fight a political war, not recognizing there's a spiritual war. And so, man, my encouragement to you is to evaluate your priorities and let God stir you into action. Uh, the other thing that he does is he calls up the spiritually discouraged. I kind of reference this, but you go into chapter 2 and you see um, so, some interesting um, uh, reflections of what you see in Ezra. Uh, when, when you go back to Ezra, what you have is you have two generations of people. So chapter one of Haggai ends, and they're starting to build again. They're active. They're about the things of God. And as they're building, you have two generations. You have a younger generation that's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like, like man, this is amazing. Like we were, it's like me looking at a snowball. I'm like, oh my gosh, a snowball. And like everybody else in that retreat was like, stupid snowball. Like they, everyone, if you're around snow, you hate snow. If you're from South Florida, you love snow. And you have this generation that's like, they've been in captivity their whole life. They're born in captivity. And they're building the temple. Like, this is so cool. We get to build God's temple. At the same time, you have a group of people who have been around since before the captivity. Haggai himself is probably over 70 years old. Like, so Haggai saw the original temple. And, and so all they're able to see is how puny and how pathetic the new temple is compared to the old one. Because the old, one was, the old one was Solomon's temple, guys. Okay? This thing, the old temple, beautiful. The one that was destroyed was beautiful. It was massive. This new temple, little Unpoco temple. Little Unpoquito temple. Okay? Tiny temple. That was Spanish, in case you're wondering. You know, this, it's this little, like, and, like, it's like you ever build something, and it's like the expectation versus reality thing where you step back and you're like, uh, you look at the picture, you're like, okay, 
I kind of see a resemblance, like, to Christmas cookies, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, and your kids walk in, they're like, Dad, why is, who's that deformed grandpa? It's like, that's Santa, okay? But, but that's kind of like the nation of Israel. They're like, look at this. This is amazing. But there's a group of people who are discouraged. This is interesting. And if you look at Haggai, look, he talks to them. He says, he says in verse 3, Who among you saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So, so Haggai knows that people are looking, the, the older generation, they're, they're like grieving, man. And there's no joy in their life, and here's why. They're unable to see what God is doing because they're too stuck comparing it to the past. They're too stuck in comparing what God did. They're too stuck in, listen, the comparison trap where you're unable to have joy in what, like right now you're like, yeah, that thing that God's calling me to, maybe you recognize it and you're like, yeah, but it's not like what God's called them to. And so the issue is in that comparison game, you start to find the significance of your task in how it relates to the tasks around you. You're not able to have the vision you need to see that there is no menial task in the kingdom of God, that every act for the service of God matters. It's eternal, and it has eternal rewards. And so these people are comparing. And and Haggai's encouragement to them, what he does is he calls them. He calls up the spiritually discouraged, and he calls them into joyful strength. He gives them a vision for how this temple, though it might be architecturally not as awesome as the last one, he says there's going to be a glory that's going to fill this temple, and it's going to be greater than the latter or than the former. And the reason is because Jesus is going to visit this temple. Isn't that crazy? Think about this. They, they have no idea that Messiah Jesus is going to enter this temple. And if they only could see that, but their focus on the past, their focus on, on what's around them, their comparison game was inhibiting their ability to see what God was doing. So God calls them from that discouragement into joyful strength. Uh, then you see God at the end of the book, he speaks to them, to the sin that's in the nation. This is really big to any kingdom project like Um, sin can undo the work of God. Not eternally. Like, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But if you're around church long enough, you'll start to see how the the consequences of sin affects things. Like, there, there is a danger to where we have such a high view of sin, okay, that we don't know Jesus as the Savior. Like, that's a problem too, isn't it? Where we're like, we're, more in t- we're, we're, we're in greater fear of sin than we are of the Savior. We can't do that, okay? The, the message of Scripture is that he has no rival. Sin is not a rival for Jesus, right? There's another danger, though, where we kind of downplay the effects of sin. And um, we don't realize we're doing that until we come face-to-face with maybe the consequences of it. And, and that, that's what was going on in the nation as well. And so it's interesting. God calls up the spiritually defiled. They were unclean. They were plagued with sin. And God calls them. It's really interesting as he's kind of giving this, at the end of the book, he's giving this parable through the prophet to the priest. And he's talking about how the people have become unclean. And how can they become clean again if they've become defiled through sin? And, and it's interesting because what God says to them, he says, is there's only one way. And it's through this sort of gifted holiness. That's what he says to them. Isn't that awesome? Gifted holiness. Like, did you know that, that there's only one kind of holiness that can give you access to heaven? Did you know there's only one kind of righteousness 
that can secure your relationship with God. Do you know there's only one kind of purity that stands before God and, and, and knows him as a father? And it's a kind of uh, holiness that comes as a gift. It's not something you achieve like, oh, I've become good enough for God's acceptance of me. You're like, oh, all these defiled ones around me. I was one among you as an undefiled one. You know, it's like, you know, that's the whole parable. Um, and, and, and Paul talks about this. It's a really beautiful verse. He says, for we are, wait, I already read that like years ago. Check us out. Hold on. I got you. There it is. He says, it is written. Oh, that's not the one either, dude. This is awkward. Um, here it is. Found it. All right. It says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, I love this, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Like, just a reminder of that. Um, there, there is a, a negative effect that sin can have on the work of God. Uh, what, what we must remember in that effort is where our holiness comes from. Our holiness is a gifted, imputed righteousness that comes through Jesus. Jesus came, became for us righteousness so that we don't have to try to become it for ourselves. And that's the only true source of any sort of holy living is knowing where it's coming from, knowing that holiness has ultimately been gifted. And then lastly, I invite the band to come up. We'll wrap these up here. The last one is that God um, builds up the people uh, who are sp spiritually opposed. That's where the book ends. Um, you know, the adversaries that, that Israel faced in the beginning, they didn't leave after 18 years. You read, uh, you read Nehemiah and you have these like, these enemies of the work of God that are like perpetual rocks in the shoes of, of the Israelites, constantly opposing what they're doing. And so I, I love where Haggai ends by building up the people in their mission. Those that are being opposed, he, he builds them up with this confident hope in what's coming. Uh, he ends this book with this statement that says, I will shake heaven and earth. And notice verse 21, he says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. That's really interesting. I will overthrow, notice he doesn't say the thrones of kingdoms. So from God's perspective, when God looks on at the world, the non-believing uh, um, community of the world, he doesn't see just thrones. He sees a throne. There's a throne over this world, over the darkness of this world. And God is promising all the opposition coming against you. He's like, it's underneath an ultimate throne that's opposing you of the enemy. But he says this really interesting thing. I'm going to shake it all. One day I'm going to shake it. I'm going to shake it up. I love that in chapter one, God's stirring and now God's shaking. I just think that's really cool. In chapter one, he's stirring the people. In chapter two, he's like, I'm going to shake the whole created order up. And it's interesting because this is the one verse from the book of Haggai that we see quoted in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Paul talks about this once more where God shakes everything up and it indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. So, so the created things of this world, man's own creations, man's own political powers, man's own purposes, one day those things are going to be shaken so that the things which cannot be shaken, the things of God, those are the things that are going to remain it's really beautiful. And here, here's, here's how it ends, this, this truth that we are those of a, of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I love that. Since we are receiving a kingdom, kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So let me invite you to stand.
We've got five more minutes left in this moment. And what I want us to do is just take these truths to heart. And we're going to sing a song that allows us to evaluate the kingdom project that God has called us to. You know, what has God called you to build? Where are your priorities? Where's your courage and your strength? Are you discouraged through comparison? Where has sin been distracting you? And where do you need to see Jesus as a savior who makes you clean? Through his own blood that he sheds on a cross. And where do you need to just be reminded of the fact that regardless of what opposition you may face and what he's called you to, in the end, Jesus wins. He wins. He's your courage. That's your confidence. That in the end, everything is going to get shaken up. And the only thing that's going to remain is this kingdom that we're called to live for. So, so maybe you've got to look in your life and go, God, what kingdom am I living for? What sort of life, legacy am I leaving? And in light of the fact that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, here's what it says. Let us serve God. So this is a song that says, God, I, I want to build my life upon your love and your purposes. So let's take a moment here and let God's word be planted in our hearts like a seed in soil. Reflect on what God has to say. We'll just invite the Holy Spirit to come download God's word to our heart in a greater way. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.